what will your future look like? The job you do today could be different than the jobs of tomorrow. Some see this as a challenge. At UCF, we see opportunity. A chance for you to grow your knowledge and strengthen your skills from anywhere life might take you. With in-demand degree programs and resources for your success, UCF Online can help you prepare for the future and all the possibilities that come with it. From the University of Central Florida's Center for Distributed Learning, I'm Kelvin Thompson. And I'm Tom Cavanaugh. And you, dear listener, are listening to TopCast, the teaching online podcast. Hey, Tom. Hey, Kelvin. Happy podcast day. Is it that time again? It is that time again, yeah. It's at least, it, it comes twice a month now, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Yeah, if I had known it was podcast day, I would have baked you a cake or maybe brewed some coffee. But, oh, maybe somebody did brew some coffee. I see you sipping here on the yes. Zoom call. It is the traditional beverage of podcast day. Yes, <laughs> of all podcasts, yes. Even podcasts about nothing to do with coffee, it's the traditional beverage. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Even people who don't like coffee on podcast day drink it. Are forced to drink it whether they like it or not. Oh, I love that much, podcast, but I hate that coffee. I guess much I have like to drink fruitcake. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although I personally do like fruitcake. I, I like fruitcake, and I have fond memories of walking around New York City with my father as he delivered fruitcakes at Christmas to all of his clients. He was a freelance commercial artist. And my mom would bake fruitcakes for all of his clients and I remember the house was covered in fruitcakes and walking around with him going Rockefeller Center I remember bringing one there that was huh. cool mm-hmm. that's that's a good that's a good memory yeah you know I got some frozen half of a fruitcake in the freezer right now I may have to thaw some out this weekend and uh there you go. Make a thing of it. Make a thing with some coffee and a podcast. That's right. That's right. Topcast, I salute you with this slice of fruitcake. <laughs> and, this, and, and this coffee. But yes, we do have coffee. Uh, would you like to know anything about this coffee that we're going to partake of? I would like to know something about this coffee that I am, I am partaking of at this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you might be surprised to know that this is just really finely blended fruitcake. No, that's not <laughs> true. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's not true. Uh, today's coffee is a blend, though. It is a blend called. I, I, I get a kick out of coffee roasters who like give names, to, you know, to their blend. It's a blend called Hologram from Counterculture Coffee in Durham, North Carolina. And, and get this: the roasters say, "Quote, Hologram is our most multi-dimensional offering," with tremendous work put into combining the inherent coffees to create something distinctly complex. And, you know, I got to tell you, I do appreciate some multidimensional complexity, (laughs) generally speaking. Sure. But (laughs) I thought that this particular coffee with this unique description might be appropriate for today's episode. Hmm. So what do you think of the coffee? And... Could you find in the murky depths of your coffee cup a connection to today's episode? Well, this is probably not the connection you were looking for. But I can't um, wait. Yeah. All right, you ready? Buckle I, up. I, okay. <laughs> I recently watched a Tom Hanks movie called Hologram for the King. 
Have you seen this movie? No, this does not sound familiar. Yeah, I don't know if it's most well-known movie. It's very good. It's based on a oh. book, a novel. Um, but it takes place in Saudi Arabia, and he's trying to sell this telecom helicram system to the to the king of Saudi Arabia for this new city they're building out of the desert. Anyway, um, it's a hologram, and that's the name of this coffee. It takes place in a foreign country, Ooh. and some of what we are talking about takes place in a foreign country. And I think they do drink coffee in this movie. <laughs> so they drink a lot of alcohol in this movie. But they drink coffee too. Um, so uh, that's a connection. It's a, it's a, it's a very Tom-specific connection. It's not a generic yeah, connection. It's, it's so amazing that yeah. you are like right there with the connection. Yeah. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't imagine that you, you just nailed it so, so well. That's exactly yeah. not what I was thinking, but nevertheless was really, <laughs> was really a, a good connection. It's informative. No, I, I think that's great. I, I love... Um, I love that those synapses all fired, and you made those associations. And now, My inductive reasoning. That yeah, can't that's really great. I, yeah. And now I got a new movie to go look up. Um, uh, by the way, podcast shout out. I keep. I think I forget to mention this to you. Uh, recently, started listening to a podcast called, that you would love. I think if you don't know it, called Unspooled. Um, it's a film critic and a former television writer um, and pop culture guru. Uh, taking a deep dive into a variety of films. I think at first they did, I think their first season was something like the um, the American Film Institute's Top 100 or something like that, and then then they've gone farther afield. I've been listening my way through their um, their take on Galaxy Quest right now. I've been in a Galaxy Quest thing. I rewatched Galaxy Quest for the first time since I saw it in the movie theater, watched the documentary, I've learned on the podcast that there's a mockumentary about uh, the, the the faux TV show. Really? Uh, it, it's a it's a whole thing now. That's a but, great movie. Uh, yeah, but maybe they do hologram for the king. I don't I don't know. Uh, what I thought was just some of the work the words in the description, like there's tremendous work involved and it's complex, and and I, I thought both of those things are true also of the work Absolutely. that's featured in the the interview. Here, so maybe we'll talk about the interview and then get in get into it. Um, so, Tom, a shall we say a while back now, yeah. uh, pre-pandemic, in the before times, in I think it was maybe December of 2019, you interviewed our colleague Dr. Christy Ford, who was at that time the chief academic officer for Davis College, and since that time, Dr. Ford has moved on to. NeighborWorks America, where she currently serves as Senior Vice President for Training. And probably like me, many in our online education community will know Christy, though, from her time leading online innovations at UMUC when it was UMUC, before it became UMGC, University of Maryland Global Campus. Or maybe they'll know Christy from her various roles at several other higher ed institutions. But is there anything you'd like to say about the interview with Christy before we cut to it? Uh, yeah, a couple of things. Um, I, I really enjoyed the, the conversation. First, an apology to Christy that has taken us this long, a year and a half, literally, <laughs> to get her interview on. So long that she's actually changed jobs. So uh, I'm sorry, Christy. That's happened once or twice before to us on yeah. on the podcast with our our folks that we've that we've interviewed. Um, another comment is because this does go back all the way to 2019. Uh, it was before we had kind of uh, come up with our remote recording procedure 
that mm-hmm. that we use uh, when we're re- interviewing people at a distance, and uh, we were using some some uh, you know more uh, rudimentary recording processes, and so the the audio quality of her side um, isn't maybe quite what you're used to hearing. It's fine. You're mm-hmm. definitely you'll be able to hear her, and and she has pretty, I think awesome things to say oh, yeah. um, but just a, a comment that it sounds a little bit different but it's fine you'll be you'll be okay and maybe the, the last comment is because it's been so long and we've had a global pandemic uh, there, there have been a, a couple of uh, things that have evolved around the Davis College uh, plan as I understand mm-hmm. it they they did have some plans for uh, some more international expansion um, that I think COVID has since altered or delayed in some form or fashion. I honestly don't know all the details, but there may be a reference or two obliquely to some things that may or may not be 100% still still accurate. It's not Christie's fault. Uh, it was accurate in December of 2019, but, uh, but there are some universal truths and definitely the work that's happening in Rwanda that she talks about is still happening there and that's all still a hundred percent relevant to the to the Aquila Institute and the the Davis College mission righty then well through the power and efficiency of modern time travel podcast technology let's cut back to that couple of year ago interview with Dr. Christy Ford. Well, Christy, thank you so much for being on TopCast. So glad to be with you, Tom. So you have a a relatively new role. I know you've been in it for a little while, but new for the duration of time that I've known you. And um, that's with the Aquila Institute slash uh, Davis College. And uh, maybe that's the first question. Maybe you could describe to the listeners um, what, what this or these organizations are. Absolutely. So when we talk about the work that I'm currently doing, Aquila Institute was formed 10 years ago. Uh, CEO and co-founder Elizabeth Dearborn Hughes really had an idea about how to educate young women and girls in Rwanda after the genocide, the horrific genocide that happened in Rwanda. And so Aquila Institute was born. As a result of that, over 10 years and three accredited diploma programs, uh, one in hospitality and tourism, one specifically in information systems, and then one in business uh, entrepreneurship, those three programs were born. And so for the last nine years, those programs have operated as a women's college in Rwanda. Now, fast forward to this year, we were really thoughtful about moving to a global brand, really thinking about how can we take some of the best essence of what we've done in Rwanda, create a global community of lifelong learners. We wanted to really be able to think about how to create these learners who could think critically and creatively. And so Davis College, in essence, it, it subsumes Aquila Institute. So there is Davis College, Rwanda. There is Davis College, Aquila Campus. So we still have a, a women's only campus, but that has been subsumed by the larger Davis College mission to really be able to think about global learners and really thinking about the access and the kinds of students that we serve. And so so Davis College will become a uh, uh, both serving both men and women, correct? 
That's correct. That's correct. Actually, uh, as early as June, when we start our of 2020, we will start our co-ed campus. So we will have our co-ed campus of Davis College, and then we will still have Davis College Aquila campus that will have our women's only brand, signature brand that most of the folks who have known us for the last nine to 10 years know us for, for delivering. You, you were very generous to invite me to participate in the uh, you know, the 10 year anniversary kind of educational summit for Aquila. And um, I got the opportunity to meet a couple of the students and, and was just really struck by their stories and the impact that just having an education can have, um, particularly on, on young women in that context. I, I just, I had to say just how inspired I was um, driving away from that event when it was concluded. Yeah, Tom, I'd love to invite you and Kelvin over to the next graduation. If you think that event was fantastic, I'm telling you, you can't imagine uh, what it's like to see these young women at graduation and their families, specifically in situations. And, and I'll just tell you, one of the reasons why Aquila Davis College has been so intru- instrumental to me and why I wanted to make the switch and, and really be able to offer impact and leadership here is when you think historically about higher education, and you think about the gold, you know, the the golden triangle of access, opportunity, and quality. And when we think about, uh, sorry, affordability, access, and quality, when you think about that triangle, as institutions, we're always tinkering with one of those elements to be able to get the right combination of elements for our students. And so as I looked at what was being done in Rwanda and saw that our students within six months, 85% of our students are leaving with a job who have come from backgrounds, that they have come from institutional um, environments where they, they didn't have access to higher education. They didn't have access to really partnership around employment. And that employment not only meant the difference for them, but their family members as they were taking care of, you know, of siblings or taking care of, of young children. And so when we, th- when we think about the importance of really what we are trying to accomplish as educators, I think there was just no better mission than what we're doing at Davis. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And, it, and I think, you know, hinting at, um, at, you know, your reasons for being involved, maybe that's a good segue for you to kind of share what your role is there and, and kind of what your day-to-day <laughs> priorities are. <laughs> Sure, I laugh because every day is different yeah. and it depends on which continent I'm working with. <laughs> so I, I joined a year ago as a chief academic officer to really oversee leadership of academic affairs at the Rwanda and Africa level, but more importantly, the global level. So thinking about what do we need to consider in terms of academic affairs uh, to move globally? What what considerations have to be different in the Asia market than it's been in the Africa or even the East Africa market? And how do I really connect with my community of scholars like yourself and others to really be able to influence change? And so it's been such a pleasure for me to be able to help the institution think more strategically about how we move forward. How do we diversify the portfolio of products that we offer? How do we move beyond offering just a diploma, which we would consider here in the States a associate's degree. How do we move into four-year diplomas? How do we think about partnerships with institutions and really be able to do some really innovative and creative um, opportunities? And so my work is really being able to oversee that, really being able to think about things like we've moved to a CBE-based model, 
thinking about how do we start to move beyond just the um, mastery of subject matter, but then also thinking about the blended learning components of combining CBE with blended learning. Uh, We've done a lot of work with Entangled Solutions and Michael Horn. How do we unbundle the faculty role? And so how do we do all of that at the same time, keeping the quality, you know, a constant for our students and making sure at the end of the day that these young women specifically can come out of our degrees and, and get employment. So could you talk a little bit more about that that design, the, the blended learning, the competency-based learning? So how does that work? Do you, are the faculty on the ground, in country, um, uh, teaching uh, through digital means as well as face-to-face means, or is there some sort of, you know, remote distance aspect to it? Great question. So as we think about in other countries, especially in countries where there are marginalized populations that are maybe under-resourced, it requires me and it requires us to really think differently about how, what does access really mean? I mean, at the most fundamental level, um, we're talking about internet access and, and consistent, viable internet access. And so as we started to embark upon this journey, uh, all my years of higher education and, and building online and blended courses in the States um, didn't prepare me to really be able to come in without taking a step back and fundamentally understanding what are the challenges in East Africa that are different from what we experience here in the state. And so we offer a blended learning program where there are, it's a, it's a 40 split split. So 60% of the, the program is offered uh, face-to-face and 40% of that, that program is offered online. And we've had to be very thoughtful and careful about that proportion because we know that our young women are typically coming to campus for the face-to-face components, but because of their living situations are also staying in our third spaces, are staying after courses are done to be able to take advantage of internet or to go to cafes and take advantage of internet. And so we've really tried to think about how do we also promote student agency in this model. So you and I both know, you know, active learning and really engaging students in their educational experiences is so critical. And and we found that being able to move from this face-to-face modality and really engage the curriculum, the projects, the assignments, the, you know, the redos, all the mastery-based um, components has been really insightful for our young women to really figure out how do I take ownership of my learning how can I make sure that I have the right skills and tools to be able to do that? So our blended learning model allows students to come to campus. Uh, so, for instance, in an, an English or leadership course, one of the things that we pride ourselves on is women's leadership. It's in our DNA and the things that we do at, D- at Davis College. And so, for a leader, for instance, a leadership course, a leadership course may meet on Monday and Wednesday. And there, there will be a 110-minute session to be able to get the face-to-face instruction. But all the quizzes, all of the, you know, the projects, all the submission pieces that go along with that course are all delivered through Canvas. We have a, a very robust learning management system. I was really fortunate to hire a really phenomenal director of academic technology that oversees that process. And then we decided, how can we unbundle what we typically know that a faculty member does? You know, a typical faculty member grades, they teach, they mentor, you know, they're all of these multiple hats that a faculty member wears. And so how can we think about unbundling that role in a way that it will be a team of individuals that come together? So we did that by looking at four roles. We have a senior lecturer, assistant lecturer, a lecturer, 
and an academic advisor. And each of those roles has a distinct um, prioritization in terms of what their task is in the classroom. So our senior lecturers are what you and I would consider your, your traditional faculty members. They come in, they offer the lesson, they offer the lecture, they do the muddiest points, they, you know, they walk students through the lesson for the day. While our assistant lecturers serve so, kind of like a TA, but also serve as tutors. So when students need out-of-class support, they go to those assistant lecturers through office hours and tutor hours to be able to get support. Now the lecturers are the ones that serve as an assessment specialist. So those are the ones that, as we've started to build our model out, are working on creating major assignments and giving feedback, really being ro robust in that feedback. So those lecturers for this term have been remote lecturers. So those individuals actually are individuals who work in the state who have helped us to develop the curriculum and the model and who have been responsible for that. And then the last role around an academic advisor is what typically you and I would consider an academic coach, a career counselor, someone who works with students through time management. If students are missing assignments or have missed multiple days uh, in the classroom, there's a red flag. And so, Tom, you'll appreciate this. Just as I've always been a big proponent of, I, I am here as well as the use of data and making sure that we have the right proactive data, make sure we're catching the students at time. And if we see a red flag around a young woman that's having difficulties, we have time to grab her, and really be able to put a plan in place and make sure that she can get back on track. How many students are you, are you typically serving? Like, what are your class sizes? How big is your facility? Because that's a real, um, that's a, it's kind of a real circle of, of support that you've put around every student with all those different kinds of roles, particularly your coaches, your kind of like retention specialists. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm just sort of wondering about the scale and, and the ambitions that you have for future scale. Yeah. So we ran this uh, first iteration, as you know, you and I both like as a pilot to be able <laughs> to gain data <laughs> and be able to really inform as we finalize the model. We are currently, the, the model in, involves 150 young women within this model. So as students are ratioed out, so to speak, 150 students are in um, one pod and one pod has two cohorts. So on average, you have about 75 young women in the class at the same time. When we started this process, originally we thought about having all 150 students in the same space, and we designed and configured for that. But my first trip over, or my second trip over to Rhonda to be able to meet with students and do a classroom observations, one of the things you will learn about uh, East African young women, they are very soft-spoken. So I would literally be observing a class of 40 students and I'd be sitting almost, I felt like on top of the young woman and I couldn't understand what she was saying because she was so soft-spoken. And so as we thought about classroom participation and engagement, we wanted to go back to that original 150 and then think about, okay, can we create cohorts? Can we make sure that we have an A and B cohort that will move through on the same curriculum schedules, but will be able to give us a little bit more uh, attention and special um, support around a student? So, you know, an academic advisor, for instance, has a, has a uh, caseload of 75 students to be able to make sure that what we know is all 75 students may need it support at the same time, but we know that there will be a time that there are a need for support. And so we wanted to make sure that we didn't overload the caseload for the 
academic advisor, but we also were really thoughtful about the times and the ways in which we, we triggered the data to be able to do that. So that is our goal and our hope is to be able to replicate that model. So as we move into 2020 and we offer our model in the cohort cohort um, for young women and men, we're using that same ratio of 150 students in one pod sectioned into two cohorts. And then those that schedule is being provided based on those ratios. Gotcha. Okay. You know, as I have uh, read about um, education in developing countries, I uh, and you know, you had mentioned under-resourced as a, mm-hmm. as a comment earlier. Um, you know, and I, I have to admit that I, I don't know a lot about Rwanda, especially since you know some of their troubles have died down. Um, do they have digital divide issues? Because I've read that in some countries, mobile has been a great equalizer where. You know, instruction has been delivered through mobile devices where there may not be the kind of, you know, just cable that's laid or fiber that uh, can reach um, students to deliver online education. Yeah, it's an interesting um, question. So I'll tell you, when we started offering our curriculum, we thought about the fact that most of our young women um, had some sort of mobile device. And so could we create a robust enough curriculum that would be supported through a mobile device? And what we found was that we really wanted to do a lot more wraparound support for our young women that even being um, in one space at a time that there were delays, that young women's phones weren't always up to um, the configurations to be able to keep up with, with, you know, competency checks. We do competency checks in the classroom and the face-to-face component. And so you would have half the young women being able to do it and the half of the young women wouldn't be able to do it. So we then moved to Kindles. We were actually delivering our all of our course content over Kindles uh, for the last uh, year and a half. And that was an improvement. Um, I think one of the things I've learned about um, doing education and, de- and developing countries is all about iteration. And it's all about making sure that there's some customization that is there. So Kindles worked phenomenally better, right? I had a, a larger surface area to be able to have a young woman to be able to see for instance, the competency-based questions and be able to do the competency-based checks. But there still is a little bit of a digital literacy divide that, that Rwanda is absolutely working on. They, you know, they have a countrywide one plus one program in terms of technology devices. But when you think about um, the equalizer of young women coming from rural um, communities versus urban, more urban areas in in the country, we still see that there is a divide, um, so much so that, you know, we offer a bridge program to make sure that digital literacy is our number one component to make sure students know how to use Google Suite. They know how to use, you know, Google Drive and email and those kinds of things. I mean, similar to what Um, we still can see in certain uh, rural areas. I think the largest piece has been about the stability around the internet and making sure that there's viability in all spaces that students have access to. So we've spent a lot of resource just to make sure that our infrastructure, as you know, you know, is is super um, secure and is also very uh, uh, reliable because moving to a blended approach, we knew that we would have to have that. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, you know, as we as we sort of look at the clock winding down, are, are there any um, kind of last things that you would like people to know about Aquila or Davis as it as it grows and um, becomes a little uh, better known? Um, ways that people can get involved if uh, if that's something that you need. 
Absolutely. So we, um, one of the things I would like to say is that um, unlike traditional higher education institutions, one of the things that we pride ourselves on is keeping the cost to serve for our students, young women low. So our degree, our two-year degree program costs us about $4,000 per student to offer. Uh, our young women through income share agreements pay for about $900 of that. And the other $3,000, $3,100, we all fundraise through development efforts, grants, uh, partnerships. And so would love to be able to have, you know, if there is interest as you're especially coming up uh, this time of year and people are always thinking about charitable donations and would love to be able to have you check us out uh, at Davis College and, and learn more about our programs. I also think that as we continue to grow, I, I really think that we are really trying to revolutionize how do you offer low cost affordable education in developing countries? Well, Chris, you're doing amazing work, and I saw firsthand the the impact that that you and the whole team at Aquila are are having on um, on these young women. So, congratulations, and and thank you for being on the show. Um, thanks so much for inviting me. And again, it's again a, such a pleasure to be able to chat with you, and so glad to have you as a supporter. Well, Tom, that was your interview with Dr. Christy Ford. That was my interview with Dr. Christy Ford. I, I, I just found that conversation so enjoyable. And as I said, I, I was exposed to this, um, this institution and the work they're doing because Christy had invited me to participate in their 10-year anniversary. It was, it was actually, it was a great venue. It was over in Tampa at the Tampa Aquarium. And uh, it was a combination sort of celebration, educational symposium, and then they actually had some philanthropic fundraising activities to try and support their mission and scholarships and things. And um, I got a chance to meet some of the, some of the students. Uh, and I was just, I was so inspired uh, hearing their stories. Uh, it, it's just, I think it's just really, really good work. And, and it's why we all are in the business yeah. of education. Yeah, I actually remember talking to you right after you came back. I, it, it stands out in my memory. I remember standing in your old office and you're like, I just went over there. And, is it, and you, you were then even more you know, inspired than I think you are now um, yeah. because it was fresh and all that. But yeah, I, it is a, a compelling story. And I think I told you before we hit record, I think to me, one of the themes that stands out in your interview with Christy is kind of like you just alluded to, the... the kind of why we're all in higher ed and especially uh, online education, it, it's really, to, to a great extent, it's really about uh, access. It's, it's making available um, a high-quality higher education to students who might not otherwise be able to, to, to get it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and there, there was, you know, how many times do we say when we're asked questions, well, it depends, or... <laughs> Your mileage may vary, or it's context specific, or whatever. A lot. Uh, <laughs> and a lot. Think about all of those factors that we deal with, probably times ten, yeah. when you're dealing with a, a, a country like Rwanda that is emerging from this, mm-hmm. you know, civil war that they've had, and they're trying to create these new opportunities for for people. And there are cultural issues. Christy talked about how soft spoken some of these mm-hmm. students mm-hmm. were, and mm-hmm. um, that cha- forced them to change. Uh, the cohort strategy. I just found all of that fascinating because yeah. you want to iterate and you want to be flexible and you want to make sure you do something that works and you can't force them to fit some model that works here in the States when it doesn't fit there on the ground in, in Rwanda. Um, yeah, I just, I just thought it was great. And, and even 
the model that they've come up with, which sounds very Western governors-y with their various roles where they got somebody who's an assessment mm-hmm. specialist, mm-hmm. somebody who's like the lecturer who teaches yep. and um, the advisors, and they're all kind of disembodied into separate functions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it reminded me of Western governors. I mm-hmm. probably should have asked her about that. And I don't know how much like Michael Horn has consulted for Western governors, but um, she did mention that, that Michael consults for them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or did for them mm-hmm. for, for a while. Um, and, and it makes sense if, if you know, they're pursuing that competency-based model that they would look at a, at a successful one like WGU. Yeah, no, I think, I think, I think all of that. Um, for sure. And I was a little fascinated. I, I would have kind of liked to have heard a little bit more about like kind of the when she was talking about the unbundling. And I think it was the lecturer, not senior lecturer, not assistant lecturer, but lecturer role that she said is like an assessment specialist um, where they design and pro- provide feedback. And currently at the time of the interview, that role was taken care of in the US. And I thought, that's interesting, right? You know, kind of that that um, kind of division of labor and, and and portioning out and and playing to strengths and and all that um, and and using technology to bridge the gaps. I, I you know I just found that interesting and I didn't know if that was a moment in time um, or not and you know why make use of the you know international folks you know here in the U.S. Uh, for that role versus others and. I don't know. It was all it was all very interesting uh, to me. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> I was fascinated by it, and uh, and then obviously in other kind of more non-recorded conversations I've had with Christy about it, she was certainly energized by the work, challenged by it, but but energized by it. One might even say it's. Multi-dimensional, <laughs> complex, complex yes. tremendous work. Like, <laughs> wonder, wonder how that connects to our coffee. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, maybe the last comment is just how affordable they're trying to keep yeah, it. Yeah, um, yeah. So four thousand dollars per student, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they're they're trying to cap that at about nine hundred per mm-hmm, student mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. they pay out of pocket. Yeah. And the rest of it is, like as I said, some of this event that I was at had to do with fundraising. Yeah. To try to um, to try to cover those costs yeah. on behalf of those students. I mean, it's a developing country. These students aren't, you know, aren't made of money. Um, but some of the pictures I've seen, they take the graduation seriously. Hmm. Like they get dressed up for it, yeah. and it's a big deal to them, as it should yeah. be. They want to celebrate yeah. it. Yeah. 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 And I okay. One final riff on that is I think I heard this. I don't think I imagined it. She talked about how powerful education and then the resulting employability are because one student's education and employability impacts an entire extended family. And I thought, you know, there's such a crystallizing vision, right? I mean, yeah. it's kind of it's kind of um, social mobility concretized, right? It's not just about one person doing better, right? It's about the it's the pebble in the pond and the ripples go out and that keep me coming to work, Tom. Yeah, that's network effects, basic, you know, and, and we, we know that even from our own work and, and having, you know, some of the stuff that I learned in working with the Gates Foundation, some of the data that they share or have funded, uh, that uh, somebody who gets a college degree in a family where there hasn't typically been college degree attainment 
um, will change the direction of that family for generations. Yeah. And um, it, it will even potentially affect, like, say, some kid who's a first-time, first-generation college student goes to college. The parent may go back to school even. So it's right. not even just like passing down to their kids right. and grandkids that college right. is an expectation. But it, it, even within that family and that single generation, uh, it's remarkable what, what that does to uh, economic and social mobility. Yeah. Well, you want to try to maybe wrap this up, land this plane? Sure. So uh, the work of online and, and blended learning is, is really, I think, to a great extent about increasing access to education, as we just sort of said. In each of our organizational contexts, we have an opportunity to increase access in various and unique ways. Mm -hmm. Considering the specific use case of Rwanda's Aquila Institute in Davis College helps us all to think through what is possible generally, everywhere, and specifically in our very own home institutions. Educational access is what we're after here in Orlando, mm -hmm. just like they are in Rwanda. Yeah. No, well said. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Well, Tom, until next time, for TopCast, I'm Kelvin. And I'm Tom. See ya.